1: The first degree.
0: first degree. First degree.
2: First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
1: I mean, you never know what's going on with a family or behind closed doors within a family. Um... And you don't know, you know what they could be hiding. Welcome to the first
3: degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting so far away from Alexis Linkletter and so far away from Billy Jensen. This is our third quarantine, social distancing podcast episode separate togetherness at its
2: finest. <laughs> separate togetherness is what we're dealing with right now. I don't
3: it's know like if when you... Harry
4: met when Harry met
3: Sally. Yeah, I don't know if you heard Alexis's very long sigh, but that's collectively how we're feeling right now. It's not yeah. the best.
4: It's very hard and I will say I mean as someone who feels really lucky and grateful to be kept busy even with this podcast during Uh, the quarantine I can't imagine how crazy everybody else is going because I'm going nuts I haven't been outside in three days I'm lacking motivation well it's just the motivation's gone it's so I feel very despondent in a very like kind of real way and it's it's super uh, humbling to like be put in touch with yourself and your mental health and the truth about the world yeah yeah
3: there's a lot of layers and there's a lot of time to think and a lot yeah. of time to yourself to reflect on everything that you've done in your life. So it's been an it's interesting yeah. I keep, one.
4: I keep jokingly texting people that idle, ha- idle hands are the devil's playground. And that's sort of been the, uh, the truth for me where it's, you have t- time to pour over things that you wouldn't normally have time to think about. And it's been just uh, self-reflective. Yeah, okay. really. usually,
2: usually, <laughs> idle hands at the devil's playground means you're killing somebody, though.
4: No, it doesn't. <laughs> well, we what fucking encyclopedia are you reading from? We are, we
3: are killing our sanity, technically, so that does make sense, even if that is the twisted definition of what that is. So I think that makes sense. But anyways, Billy. More importantly, what day is it today?
2: Well, it's Dog Fighting Awareness Day, and mm-hmm. then
3: important, day. important.
2: It's also Dog Farting Awareness Day.
3: Dog Farting Awareness Day. So that's just letting your dog know that you know that they passed gas and you still love them for it?
2: I think that's what they're saying, yeah.
4: I feel like that's enough of that.
3: (laughs) That is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights.
4: And turn up your high, high anxiety.
2: Because this could be you.
4: just following our introduction, I say something poetic, maybe, or something that helps to sort of set the tone of the episode. What are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to glean from this? Why are we doing this? But instead of saying something witty or poetic, I'm going to actually read an excerpt from People v. Sepi 221 from 1917, where a judge went on record to describe the difference between intent versus motive. Let me explain motive, and in particular, the difference between motive and intent. Intent means conscious, objective, or purpose. Thus, a person commits a criminal act with intent when that person's conscious objective or purpose is to engage in that act, which the law forbids or to bring about an unlawful result. Seems obvious, right? Anyways, motive, on the other hand, is the reason why a person chooses to engage in criminal conduct. If intent is an element of a charged crime, the element must be proved by the people beyond a reasonable doubt. So, we know this, right? But motive, however, is not an element of the crimes charged. Therefore, the people are not required to prove a motive for the commission of the charged crime. What we're saying here, motive means an opportunity are important, but not essential. The why we can forego if we understand the intent.
2: The setting for today's case is Peoria. It's the largest city that sits on the Illinois River. Other things about Peoria? According to the City to Move to guide, Peoria consistently ranks in the top 10 best mannered cities in the country. Peoria is also the hometown of Richard Pryor, one of the most important and influential stand-up comedians of all time, who drew the line between comedy and tragedy as thin as one could possibly paint it, end quote. Peoria is also home to Bradley University, which is a top ranked private college, where 63 year old Dr. Susan Brill de Ramirez was a well liked English professor. Susan's husband, Antonio Ramirez Barone, also 63, was employed by Bradley University as well as a technology support specialist.
4: And it's at the university that our first degree Rachel enrolled in Susan's class.
1: Peoria isn't like the safest area. I'm going to be honest. Um, A lot of... So, like, the Bradley's campus is pretty open, and um, a lot of people have been mugged or robbed at gunpoint. Um, Like, two of my friends when I was there got robbed at gunpoint. I mean, hard hard to explain. It's like a city, but it's like a small city in itself, and there are a lot of good things about it, and then there's a lot of bad things about it at Bradley University, uh, which is in Peoria, Illinois, and it's a pretty small school. There's probably about 4,000 undergrad at one time, you know, and then there's graduate students. Um, so, it's pretty, like, close-knit school. She, Susan, uh, she taught uh, English class, and I had her my senior year of college, and she, the particular class that I had was a business Um, English class with her and she, uh, it was like teaching about LinkedIn and, you know, professionalism, you know, when we graduate kind of thing. So it was a different class, but she was always like super enthusiastic about everything and um, very much like a spitfire kind of person uh, and, you know, very knowledgeable, you know, would not everything very well and well, I really enjoyed having her as a professor still connected with her after I graduated and stuff because she was good but yeah she was always super helpful and really nice her husband also worked at Bradley too um he worked in like the technology department um, and I knew she she talked about that a lot and I knew she had a son but she never really went too much in to him
3: Susan had initially taken a position at Bradley University as an assistant professor in 91 and quickly advanced upward, becoming one of the most highly regarded professors at the school by autumn of 2018. And today's case takes us back to October 25th of 2018, the not-so-distant past. You probably remember what songs were topping the charts on the radio, but in case you don't, it was Girls Like You by Maroon 5 and Cardi
4: B and Sicko
3: Mode by Travis Scott.
4: And it was at 10 p.m. on the night of October 25th that the local police received an alarming phone call from Susan and Antonio's son, Jose, who is 21. Jose had called 911 after arriving at his home that he shared with his parents and finding it in total and complete disarray. The house had been ransacked, and he found what appeared to be dried blood on the floor of his parents' room. Neither of his parents could be found anywhere, and Jose begged the dispatcher to send a deputy immediately to the scene.
2: So law enforcement heads toward Myre Road in Princeville, which is a small rural area on the outskirts of Peoria. And this house had a long driveway and couldn't be seen from the street even during the day. It was a single-story house with a yellow and brick exterior, three bedrooms, two baths, and it sat on almost 14 acres. As the police approached the property, they observed two cars in the driveway of the home. They walk into the house, and they observe what Jose had talked about on the call. The house was completely ransacked. But worse, it appeared that there had also been a vicious struggle. Many items were missing from the home, and the dried blood that Jose had described was evident.
3: And the police suspected foul play, but they had to know more about this family to know where to start. And it turns out that Antonio Ramirez Barone was a longtime and deeply involved Scientologist. In fact, according to the Scientology records, he'd reached the quote-unquote state of clear all the way back in 1991. He had done the quote L rundowns a few years later in 94. And the L rundowns have been likened to like a master's program or graduate school for the high ranking Scientologists. And like everything else in Scientology, the programs and courses are shockingly expensive. And they can only be done at the Flagland base, Scientology's headquarters that are in Clearwater, Florida.
4: Yes. So apparently the cost of three L rundowns would have cost about $70,000 each. And it wouldn't be unusual for the total to exceed a quarter of a million dollars for the Ls alone that Antonio had taken. While Antonio was a Scientologist, Susan Brill de Ramirez was not. She was a member of the Baha'i faith and would often bring her son Jose with her to the local organization to practice Baha'i. So there's a spiritual diversity in this family. But does this have anything to do with the reason why Susan and Antonio were missing and their house ransacked? For police, it was way too soon to tell.
1: So uh, the first thing that I saw, it was that she was missing. Um, I guess they both hadn't shown up to her, her class and then her husband didn't show up to his job. It was it was definitely alarming because um, she was never one to miss a class. Like she was always that professor that would go to like the very last minute of class, you know, never would let us out early, kind of thing. Um, so it definitely struck me very odd that because at first it was just that they were missing or they didn't report in, and then it was the whole it looked like someone broke into their house. And after that, it was kind of kind of scary and. Um, worrisome. So I remember seeing a post, I believe, because I I still am friends with a lot of Bradley people. I think the university or someone related to the university had posted about how she was missing kind of thing. And then it very kind of quickly developed into, well, you know, the son said that it looked like someone had broken in kind of thing. Everyone was just kind of frazzled.
2: And the instinct is always to hold out hope in cases like these. But the fact that there was dried blood at the scene caused the police to fear the worst. They went over what they did know so far. Susan and Antonio's cars were at the scene, so they didn't leave in their own vehicles. They thought about the possibility of a random burglary, which was possible but unlikely due to the remoteness of this home. It'd be very difficult to do an initial canvas of this home without being seen or noticed. But that being said, in some cases, a home's isolation itself can be a target, especially in rural areas where crystal meth tends to be an issue. Police wondered if a student at the school, maybe, uh, with a vendetta, could be implicated somehow. After all, Bradley University seemed to be the nucleus of this family's lives.
3: So while this double missing persons investigation is picking up speed, word of the case started spreading throughout the community and then the media. Local police appealed to the public for help in locating the prominent and well-liked couple. Bradley University's president sent an email to all of their students, faculty, and staff stating that two employees were missing. And he ended his email with, quote, please be sure to check on your colleagues and support one another as the Bradley family deals with the situation, end quote. So people are obviously scared. Who would be the next to go missing from their homes inexplicably? Police start by questioning family members and colleagues. Everyone who knows them is terrified and obviously fearing the worst because there's no way either of them would just willingly vanish. Colleagues of theirs were able to confirm that each of them had been at the university that Thursday, the day prior to being reported missing by their son.
4: And as police probe those who knew the couple best, they start to learn a bit more about the couple's son, Jose. They learn that Jose had been adopted in either 2004 or 2005, at around age seven years old. They run a background check on the 21-year-old. They find that he has no criminal history, no history of violence whatsoever, which makes them think, okay, who's jumping from no no violence, no criminal activity to making their parents disappear. So this is good. They also find that the 21-year-old didn't attend Bradley University. However, he did take classes at the local community college, Illinois Central College. That's interesting. Whatever. They also learned that Jose had been in the foster care system and had a long history of behavioral issues and discipline problems with his parents. Okay, so this is something to pay attention to. But also... Having behavioral issues is common. I definitely can speak for myself when I say I've had them when I was a kid. And it's a long leap between teenage angst and having behavioral issues to being responsible for why your parents have mysteriously vanished.
2: So, on paper, nothing is jumping out to them about Jose's history. But then one of the couple's colleagues tells them about a 2011 incident. That piques their interest. When Jose was 13 years old, Bradley University police filed a report. He apparently had written some words on a mirror in the bathroom of an academic building. The writing on the mirror said, quote, I want to kill my parents. Okay, but this is coming from an immature and underdeveloped mind of a 13-year-old. Does this information hold any weight here at all?
3: And I think that's one of those interesting things that if something like this didn't happen, that would be such a mindless, unimportant event in this kid's life. But because his parents did go missing and maybe there's some suspicion on him, now it's important.
4: Absolutely. And I also think the the notion of, you know, I, I threw the fact that he was adopted in there. I actually had reluctance to do that because... Being adopted is not a variable that should count against you. You know what I mean? Um, but I think for, for this case, it, it's something the police were looking at. You know what I mean? Like this, the, these pillars of the community went missing. They were trying to deconstruct everything that could help them with a lead.
3: Well, and it could have gone either way too, where it was looking at if they were good parents to him as well. And if there was a domestic issue or something like that in their household.
2: And it's obvious that they were going to look at Jose and and look at Jose closely because a he was at the scene, so he you know so when you're looking at means motive and opportunity, he's there. He has the opportunity because he's right there. He's at the scene, and obviously, not to not only that he is related, you know, he's the son. So uh, you're going to have to look at all avenues. Hearing something like this, though, with the "I want to kill my parents," they're just interviewing a ton of people and collecting information. But this is definitely something that. I'm sure raised their eyebrows.
4: Right. But I got to say, I got to add one more thing is I can't tell you how many times, I mean, I had, I love my parents, but I was a really (laughs) troubled teen. And I remember my dad reading my journal. I think I was 13, 14 or something. And I said horrible things about my dad. Cause I was such an angry, Angsty. angsty person. And I, he was like, do you really think this about me? Do you really mean that? And I was like, no, I am so sorry. I didn't think you'd read my diary. <laughs> That's another thing too, though, where it's like every,
3: not every 13 year old. I take that back.
4: But there are many, many.
3: innocent 13 year olds that number one, barely even know what killing or death is. And two are just sure. writing shit because there are other angsty friends are writing it and they're trying to fit in or they're feeling all these hormones and emotions that they don't know how to get out. Like there's so many different explanations for that than actually thinking that somebody is violent and is going to kill their parents. So the more police are talking to different people, the more they're uncovering what appeared to be hatred that Jose had for his parents and seemed to be bubbling over. So, of course, the next thing to do is to question Jose directly. And it turns out that Jose had gone to his mother's Baha'i center by himself and according to those who knew him, is something that he would not normally do. So this is kind of suspicious. So does this act suggest that Jose was praying for the safe return of his parents? Or was it an expression of guilt and
4: remorse? The police were about to find out. So police were prepared to rip out all the tools in their skills of interrogation arsenal. They were going to question Susan and Antonio's son, who they suspected to be involved. They get him in an interrogation room, and to their surprise, none of those skills would be necessary. Because in a very matter-of-fact and unapologetic tone, Jose began to tell police that his parents weren't missing. His parents were, in fact, dead, and he had killed them. I pepper sprayed both of them, I should say, first, and then...
0: Well, My mom was still confused and had to spe- pepper spray because she lies on her back. So I did her right after I pepper sprayed my dad, and I knew she was still going to be confused and burned. And after I was done with my dad, she was already at the end of the table, I'm wondering what was going on. What was she saying? What's going on? Okay, and then what did you do? I sacked her.
4: He told the detectives that essentially he was tired of them, so he waited until they were asleep. He went into their bedroom with a knife. He used pepper spray to distract them and incapacitate them while he stabbed his dad in the stomach and then the neck before moving on to his mother, where he did the same thing. Later in the interrogation, Jose gave the detectives a second version of this story, which included also hitting his parents with a baseball bat, which would have disoriented them. After his parents were dead, he wrapped them in a tent and a tarp and put their bodies in his dad's SUV. He destroyed their cell phones, and he tried his best to clean up the scene, using cleaning supplies from under the kitchen sink, bleach and stain removers to try to get blood out of carpets he threw out the bedding on his parents' bed. And then he staged the house to make a look as if a burglary had gone bad, removing a TV from the living room, among other items.
1: The first thing was, oh, like from like the crime scene, that it, they, the police assumed that they were were no longer alive or there was a struggle of some sort um, because I believe there was blood in the bedroom and stuff. And, and then... I don't think it was very shortly after they like announced that that um the son confessed to it. So then after that, uh that was released. So it was it was a very short time frame from uh when the cops were there, you know, checking everything out to when he actually confessed to it. It was a whirlwind. <laughs> You don't want to, like, imagine, like, what their, you know, their last moments are and stuff. But that would just be terrible, you know. His mugshot and, like, all the pictures I've ever seen of him are very, very creepy. He look, I mean, I don't want to assume anything, obviously, but he just doesn't look very well. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's just like, you know how if you look at someone's picture and you can just see in their eyes that they're just not all there, just almost like evil in his eyes. I don't know if you've seen his his mugshot, but it's just very, it it like chills you to see it. And
2: Jose told him that the killings were planned only a few days before. And as if his confession couldn't get any more shocking, he then dropped a bombshell. He hadn't acted alone. He had help in the form of his friend, 20-year-old Matthew Roberts. So Parasite, the killing of one's parents, is rare. It's not unheard of. You know, it's a species of crime that people are familiar with. But what is highly unusual is for this type of crime to get help. One thing to go and kill your parents, which is rare, but to actually have help in it, I can't think of any other situation when this has happened.
1: But I also think it's interesting how his friend... Uh, I think his friend was the one that helped him dump their bodies, um, and he, like, knew about it. Uh, I think he was in the house at the same time that they were murdered, but he didn't. And that, I mean, that in itself, like, having a friend help you, that just, like, what kind of person, I mean, that's, that's also just very odd to me, I guess, you know your friend tells you that he wants to kill his parents you know I would not help him their bodies or or anything that kind of stuck out to me and a little bit more just because yeah the son killed his parents but also his friend was involved even weirder because he probably you know he probably knew them if he was his friend
4: Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Visit RealReal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply.
2: Matthew Roberts was there when the slayings occurred, and then he helped Jose clean up the scene and dispose of their bodies. Jose was charged with two counts of first degree murder for murdering his parents. When detectives asked Jose what his motive was, He said, the why doesn't matter. And Matthew Roberts was immediately taken into custody to be questioned.
3: Once Matthew was in an interrogation room, he told police the same thing that Jose did. He had been there, he knew it was going to happen, and he helped. So why would anybody do this with their friend? Police start to look into Matthew's background and they learn some disturbing things as well as an observed dark pattern of behavior. Matthew had a rough upbringing, and it culminated in a terrible car accident that gave him a head injury. And he also had a history of failed suicide attempts. In fact, in May of 2018, only five months before the murders occurred, Matthew tried to kill himself by jumping off a water tower in Princeville. He lived, but he hurt his arm so badly that it was amputated as a result. He was released from the hospital in August, and the Ramirez's were murdered a little over two months later. Matthew Roberts at first was only arrested and charged as an accessory to the killings, but he was later charged with murder once the full scope of his involvement came to
4: light. Right. And with these chilling confessions, the fear of those who loved Susan and
1: Antonio were realized. I mean, it was that's, it's terrible. I felt terrible, you know, because you would never, ever think that, A, you know, someone's own son would do that to their mother and, you know, you've never... I mean, you don't ever think it would happen. Um, and I know it really shook uh, Bradley's community to the core because um, I believe at the same time, they'd also lost a student around the, the same time. So it was it was very somber there. There was just a lot of, like before that all came out, there was just a lot of rumors too. I think one was like, I definitely remember seeing one that they thought it was, like, a family member, but they didn't say, like, a son, necessarily. They thought it was, like, a family member coming to rob them. Uh, I remember that one. A lot of it was, like, robbery or, like, a family member coming in. He did not like his parents. Um, I knew he, he was adopted, um, which I don't know if that made a difference in his mind or not, um, but... From what all I've read and heard, that it was he just straight up did not like his parents and didn't, and one of them dead. Um, I don't think there ever was any more of a, of a release like, motive than that.
0: <laughs> I
1: could never imagine doing that because some, like, even a parent or any family member, like, I don't know, you know, what, what... Like, not trauma, but just what goes through your mind when you're thinking that and then, you know, acting it out. It just, you know, you can't even imagine it, you know. Um, You don't know if, you know, he was hurting in some type of way that, you know, he couldn't express to his parents or, you know, you never, you never know.
4: And what came along with Jose and Matthew's horrific confessions were also the location of where they had dumped Susan and Antonio's bodies. Jose provided police with instructions to get to the site where he threw his parents' bodies into the Spoon River. And he didn't have an exact location, so he gave them what he believed to be the location. After a day of searching, the remains were pulled from the water the following day and taken into autopsy for an official ID. So, after conclusively identifying each of them, the autopsy revealed that both Dr. Susan Brill de Ramirez and Antonio Ramirez Barone suffered severe head and body injuries, as well as multiple stab wounds. The extent of the catastrophic injuries made pinpointing the exact cause of death nearly impossible. But what the coroner could tell is that they fought for their lives. And had many defensive wounds according to court documents quote the stab wounds were pretty significant throughout their body there were multiple defensive wounds as well as on the upper arms so they bluntly didn't go down without a
2: fight four days after the arrest of jose and matthew bradley university held a vigil for the slain couple the bradley university community was understandably horrified and online tributes to susan brill de ramirez began showing up immediately, written by scholars around the country who admired her work. The vigil was held in the Student Center Ballroom at the place this couple loved so much, the Bradley University campus.
0: Senseless and
2: tragic, they have been taken from us much too soon, but we must remember that this event and the grieving that will follow is not really about them.
0: They are now with their God, and they feel no pain or loss. Today is really about us, those whom they leave behind, feeling such a deep sense of
2: loss. Susan and Tony would not want us to become angry or bitter, to shut down and stop living our lives to the fullest, or to fail to be the kind of people they inspired us to be.
0: I hope. Hesitated to put this in but I'm I'm going to say it and I hope it doesn't sound callous or disrespectful because I certainly don't intend that but we have to remember that everyone
2: who lives will someday die everyone in this room will someday die and I say that not to lessen the sense of tragedy or to suggest that we should not mourn or grieve we have to do that we would not be human if we did not But I say this to help us all remember that it is never about how or when someone dies
3: that is important. It's really about how they lived. And there is no doubt that Susan and Tony both had lives well lived. In every respect, they were loving, caring, kind, generous people. Then in November of 2019, after a three-day bench trial, the judge found Jose Ramirez guilty of two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of his parents, and he was sentenced to life without parole. In a separate court proceeding, Matthew Roberts pled guilty but mentally ill, which is an option that you can take in this state, apparently. Matthew's attorney argued for the mentally ill provision, stating that Matthew only got on board with the slayings because Jose asked him to, despite not having any problems with the couple before. And of course, there was his documented past, which reflected indications of mental illness.
2: So according to Matthew's mental health evaluation, he's portrayed as having little remorse for the slayings, just like Jose. A mental health expert diagnosed him with bipolar disorder, psychotic disorder, PTSD, and ADHD. The expert noted Roberts's childhood, which included physical and mental abuse, and was a major role in his willingness to participate in the murders. During Matthew's sentencing, Antonio's brother made a victim impact statement. According to court documents, he said, quote, During the homicides, both defendants mocked the remains of my brother and his wife. They talked to them. That's depravity. They also talked about dismembering them and scattering their remains. There is absolutely no remorse shown, end quote. Matthew Roberts was sentenced to 60 years for his role in the murders.
4: There's no doubt that one of the most stunning aspects of this case is Jose's stunning lack of remorse.
2: In day two of the bench trial for Jose Ramirez, accused of killing his adoptive parents, we're hearing him talk to his first jailhouse visitors after he admitted to killing his parents in their Princeville home last October.
1: His first jailhouse visitors seem happy to see him. How are you? I'm good.
0: What are your emotions like? Um, Just tired I guess I know you
5: guys probably want me to be like sad or I, I'm i sorry but I do not
1: If you hadn't done it in October would you do it now?
5: No All I know is that I would have just been gone one way or the other. I would have either just killed myself or just, you know, moved away.
4: So I think it's clear. We know that Jose says he didn't like his parents, but he is in the minority and that most people really f***ing love them.
5: My name is Dan Smith, and I'm a professor in the Department of Communication. I've known uh, Tony and Susan the entire time that they've been here at Bradley, and they were a fascinating couple because if you met them separately, you never would have put them together. Uh, They were a perfect combination of of complementary parts. Susan didn't want the spotlight, but could not avoid it because Susan was incredibly passionate about anything, most particularly about her students. She was a leader on this campus for efforts for student success, students who were uh, in their first generation, students who had particular difficulties. And um, she... She believed so much in the necessity of this opportunity of education that she was willing to do anything for any student. Tony worked more behind the scenes, but Tony was was not only competent, but incredibly generous, uh, kind to a fault, patient and uh, the perfect compliment to her because uh, they were very much a combination of fire and ice and that Susan uh, was in the spotlight and Tony was making sure that the spotlight was on her. So um, we've lost a tremendous example of of what life can be uh, when you're with the right person.
4: So it's very clear in this scenario and in most scenarios, is that we don't know what is going on behind closed doors.
1: I mean, I would say, I mean, you never know what's going on with a family or behind closed doors within a family. um, And you don't know, you know, what they could be hiding uh, kind of thing. And, you know, a world, you know, the world lost, you know, two great people um, for something that, shouldn't have happened and you know it's very tragic and a lot of people are missing out on her presence you know and her teaching and you know missing out on her husband's work as well
4: so jose was sent to prison and the answer as to why this happened remained elusive but once he was in prison Jose started to correspond with, and then have phone calls with, a reporter. Here's what he told reporter Janice Rebels about the beginning of his life. So apparently, Jose was put in foster care at three years old in Colorado. And it wasn't until he was almost eight years old that he was adopted by Susan and Antonio. So you have to think about this. Susan and Antonio adopted a child at seven years old. This is what Jose said to this reporter, quote, I had a lot of angerment issues to begin with. I didn't make friends at easily at school. He was then asked if he thought these anger issues had come from being in foster care. He said, yes. Quote, actually, I know that, for a fact, I've been angry ever since I was three, probably. He then said, I've gone to therapy ever since I was adopted. Um, but I'm not really good at confronting my emotions. So most of the time, I felt like it never really helped. Jose had tried to kill himself at 10 years old, and he'd written a suicide note. So that's another thing we have to look at here. He aged, of course, and when he became an adult, he said of that, that with his two parents working at Bradley University, he felt a lot of pressure in school, saying he had dyslexia, and then he never felt like he could make his mom proud. And then, quote, he said, but eventually... I just stopped caring about making her
1: proud. I know, I know one time she we were talking about LinkedIn or something and I had already had my LinkedIn like all set up or something and she like made me get up in front of the class and like show everybody my LinkedIn page and I remember being like very not scared about it but I was just thrown off by it but she was super encouraging, you know, that it was okay and what I had done was, like, really good, you know, for my future kind of thing. I think that's one thing I remember the most about it. I I think she probably was strict, um, but she was also very lively and, like, energetic. So I could see her being, like, a really fun kind of parent, too, as well she wasn't, she wasn't like a strict professor by any means, but she was just very passionate about what she taught and everything. So I can see her, you know, going into that. And she was very passionate about, you know, college. It definitely made me think like, oh, wow, like this, this could actually happen to, you know, someone I know, um, kind of thing. Cause before, you know, you you read about it, you watch a ton of stuff on it, and you you just never think that you would actually know someone who would be a victim of a murder. And you know, it just kind of changes your perspective and kind of makes you cherish people more, I guess. Cheesy as that sounds.
2: So naturally with a case like this, there's a lot of speculation and controversy, and discussion on the internet in its wake. And people want to know, why did this happen? So people looked at him being in the foster care system. He was adopted at seven. He had foster care experience as a young child. Could that have contributed to this? What about the Scientology aspect? You know, Scientology is a group that notoriously shuns psychiatry. Could some of Jose's psychological red flags have been ignored or missed completely. In some discussions, Susan was described as overbearing. Remember, Jose had talked about wanting to make her proud, then stopping. And she was the one that was the the disciplinarian and wore the pants in the family. Could that have been a contributing factor? But you know what? Uh, There's a lot of of stuff there. Whenever you're trying to make sense of such a horrific act— We know that the foster care system isn't perfect, but there's a lot of people that go into foster care and they have a wonderful experience. There's a lot of people that, um, you know, not everybody in Scientology goes and and kills people. And not everybody, certainly with overbearing moms, is going to go and do something. You know, who knows what caused this tragedy? It's just as possible that Jose was a sociopath would have turned out the same way even under the best of circumstances.
4: So when the reporter conducted that interview with Jose from behind bars, she asked him what he was studying in college around the time that the murders occurred. And he responded with, quote, ironically, I was studying child psychology. I had a pretty rough childhood and I wanted to help kids be able to go through their childhood better. I know I would be able to relate to what they've been able to go through. So, and this conversation occurred eight months after the death of Susan and Antonio. And throughout this entire conversation, Jose implied that he killed them. He's, he's very uh, free about discussing it and very uninhibited while he discusses it. And when he's asked if he misses his parents, he says, quote, no, not really. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, so a big, big thank you to Rachel, our first degree for this week. If you have a story that you would like to tell, please reach out to us. Hello at podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at thefirstdegree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen. Join our Facebook by searching the first degree in the little search bar where we're talking true crime all the time. And we're going to set up another Zoom happy hour soon where we're just going to drink with all you guys and talk about true crime. We had such a fun one last week, so we're going to do it again. Again, and stick around Because we're gonna kill some time
2: And remember Only you could prevent serial killers And the coronavirus And keep your friends close But, but at, at least six,
3: six, feet feet away. six
4: feet away And then also not that close and Not also, that close No No one can In be ta- that close Happy dog, dog farting day Ew Awareness. Dog Awareness Day. Dog Farting Awareness Day. <laughs> Sources for today's episode include Dayton Daily News, the Springfield News Sun, the Chicago Tribune, Court Documents, CBS News, the Underground Bunker, the Peoria, Journal Star, the Daily Mail, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.
0: you. <laughs>
3: Alright, welcome to the killing time. We have tried three times the now. Killing
4: time, Jacqueline. I'm glad it organically just said it. Did love I you say the? You, you did. sure did. Oh no, I've been brainwashed.
3: I'm you, no, I'm telling you, the killing time it. works, man. It's, it does it's, have a ring to it. But now, just I'm standing my ground and I'm not letting. I'm not letting you win. I'm not letting you win. Except, Alexis. link. Except Dutter.
4: subconsciously, I did because you said <laughs> it without it's my like thing.
3: It just rolled right off the tongue too. It really I'm did. so pissed it about really it.
1: really does. It's, oh, it's I love like it.
3: subconscious. Okay, well what I yes. was trying to say before I was so rudely interrupted is, is we've tried 3 times now to do the killing time. We've tried 3 yeah, times now to do the killing time. <laughs> and uh you know there are a lot of technical difficulties when you're trying to record remotely with the internet. We can't hear each other. It's like nothing is going right for us. So I hope that this one works. Billy, you look and we we're also Zooming. We can see each other. But Billy looks so bored. Are you okay, What Billy? was that? I'm sorry. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Are you alive?
2: I'm fine. I am alive. Yes. Barely. I'm I barely alive.
3: Billy, your little nook looks so... Um, It looks like a
4: movie set. I gotta tell you that lamp, he told me yes. we had a pitch meeting the other day. That lamp doesn't belong there. That's a door. He put that there because he thought his background was too... Um, yes. Uh, boring. So he, he, he staged that little nook for this exact, you purpose. know, because,
2: because let's be honest, when you've been and all of our listeners can understand this, you've all been on zoom calls. How many times are you looking at the people on the zoom calls? And how many times are you looking at yourself and like your surroundings and picking apart things about yourself and things about your surroundings? Well, what does to that have do, to do that?
4: with you staging your background?
2: That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I'm apart that people, my background.
4: What you're saying is that people only pay attention to themselves, so no one gives a shit about your background. And yet, here you are, staging <laughs> but, yours.
2: But I do, Complete though. Complete
4: narcissism. Billy, what does this lamp represent
3: in a Zoom call? Like, if somebody is doing a Zoom call with you, I'll, I'll describe it. It's like one of those... What is it made out of? Like a silk string or something? Yeah, like a silk silk string, kind of like a victor.
2: It's like a Victorian lamp that you would see. Where did
4: you get that? Yeah, is it vintage?
2: It's not vintage now.
4: Okay, I mean it's vintage for
2: me. I've had it for thirty years, so that's vintage. That'd be vintage for you guys since you'd be three years old when I bought it. Where
4: did you get it?
2: I don't know. Probably a store in Long Island.
3: Okay, right. so okay. anyways, my question was okay, Billy has this silk string cream colored lamp that he has in this the right hand corner of his yes. Zoom setup. What does that represent to your Zoom participants in a pitch meeting? What does it say about you?
2: That I'm going to shine light on the bad evildoers and bring justice.
1: Oh, okay.
3: That's <laughs> Dear God. Okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Billy, Alexis told me that you had an idea for Killing Time. Do you want to just... I do. Up? I have
2: a couple things. Okay. Um Have... And it comes from something, and I want Alexis to, to describe it. What are some of the weird recipes or concoctions that you've created from the food that you have on hand?
4: Should I go first?
3: Yes. So we know you always have something weird going on. Me? Oh, Yes.
4: So over here, <laughs> I, I've been making this very um, incredible dish. So it basically starts with a piece of deli <laughs> meat, whether it be turkey or ham, whatever your preference is. Some people don't like to eat ham. That's fine. I support I'm you. I'm not a ham eater. That's fine. Turkey is also good. So you take a slice of turkey and you slather cream cheese all over it. Meanwhile... Delicious. I mean, that alone would be amazing, but it gets better. It so meanwhile, you take a, a long pickle spear and you like sort of slice it so it's even longer and narrower. You, you make it half as thin as it would have been and you put it on the piece of deli meat and then you roll it like it's a sushi roll and then mm-hmm. you cut it like it's a hand roll and you make a little like sushi rolls out of this little meat cream cheese pickle situation you can put anything else in it. You could put avocado. You could put a tomato. You could put a green, whatever, the, whatever you want, but it's literally the best thing I've ever eaten. And it's.
3: So do you eat these with a uh, chopstick or are you eating these? Is it a finger food? Do you dip it in For me,
4: it's a finger food. It's like, it's like a finger. It's like a little finger, f- finger sandwiches. <laughs> finger, it's a finger sandwich. <laughs> And uh, no, it's amazing. And I make them as like a mid-afternoon snack. So I like to just graze. I have small three small meals, but I need like two big snacks a day. And that's one of them. And it's incredible. That, I mean, honestly, I've done the turkey
3: cream cheese concoction before. It is, I actually did it last week. Delicious snack, but add a pickle in there. I was telling you guys earlier, it has been near damn impossible to find f-ing pickles during this pandemic. And I finally did. So I am going to add my pickle to my turkey cream cheese roll up sushi roll
4: tomorrow. Dude, dude, please do it. And then do like a ham one. I mean, any deli meat you have I don't like will ham. do. Not, no ham for Jack, but any of <laughs> mm-hmm. you listening who don't likes like ham. ham. It's gross.: Ham is actually what the recipe calls for. I do turkey because I'm not a big ham eater either, but I did buy some ham because I was craving the authentic recipe, and it was fantastic. And I highly recommend. And Billy okay. so, you said, you said you wanted to try this yourself?
2: I did. I did want to try that, and I am not a, uh, how you would say, an adventurous eater.
4: No, Billy likes you know, to eat.
3: When we get sushi, Billy gets the weird chicken teriyaki. No, sometimes a steak with yeah. a spaghetti. Let's not forget at <laughs> that time that he ordered spaghetti and steak from a Japanese restaurant. <laughs> right.
2: Um, yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, you, Alexis. Um, there's something that I get from the store that's that's kind of similar. You can get ham or turkey and cheese and crackers, and it comes with two Oreos. It's called a that's lunchable. That's called a lunchable. It's fantastic, yeah.
3: Which, by yeah, the way, I don't know if we've talked about it, but we did get lunchables very, like, not even more than a month ago,
4: as just a little snack when we were recording. And damn it, they are so good. Babes, I got to tell you, I have like uh, Whole Foods and Pavilions and Gelson's have like created like a healthy Lunchable and I have like four in my fridge.
1: Yes. Like just in a pack?
4: A preservative. Yeah, in a pack. It's really good. It's like, and they do one prosciutto and crackers and like some grapes and they make them like fancy. Oh, so
3: it's like, it's just like a mini, like a personal cheese, cheese plate. plate.
4: Exactly. Exactly.
3: Yeah. There's
2: also there's also I think like um, Hillshire Farms or something does a adult lunchable as I like to call it with melba toast and prosciutto and uh, yeah and I
5: have some those cheese. in my That's fridge too good. I have like yes.
4: twenty of these in my fridge just as a backup <laughs> I need some of this shit this you
3: really do they are um, okay well I have a question um, so you know everybody's been binging shit we talked about Tiger King last uh episode what is your favorite binge of quarantine thus far
4: I'm gonna go first because me and Jack talked about this before we recorded little fires everywhere I'm all cut up now I watched it all in one day it was the best shit I've seen in my life since Big Little Lies it is very this year's- very Big Little Lies-esque so if you liked Big Little Lies little fires everywhere. It's, it's the same vibe. It's this, uh, everything about it is very similar. Better. It's even better. And, And it's so funny. I was watching it last night and I was thinking to myself, like, how do the writers do it? Everything pays off in a way, like everything they set up episode one pays off in episode eight in this very poetic, um, sort of socially relevant, uh, way. And I'm just like, it's it's some of the best writing I've definitely seen in TV. And uh, I mean, Reith, what, Reese Witherspoon, no one dislikes that chick. She's amazing. Carrie Washington. I mean, it's it's just an incredible epic. show. Epic. The It's really just the writing and the parallels you can see in uh, today. And when I say today, I meant prior to the pandemic. I mean, the feminist <clears> issues, <throat> they really address a lot of them. I mean, I know that's like an afterthought now with everything that's happening. Not to me, but I just you know, I don't want to offend by saying, like, it's the forefront, but uh, yeah, it's truly the f- best writing and one of the best shows I've seen in a long time.
3: And there are parts about it that I think are predictable in a way, where you start off an episode and you're like, oh, well, obviously this is going to happen, and it does, but in the most twisted f- up way and then you throw an entire different storyline that makes the one thing that you thought was a big deal not really matter so the way that they're doing it is and like tying everything together it's a nice twisted web which i always like in a show it's very that's
4: what i'm saying they're they're paying shit off way later right like the cliffhanger on the most recent episode and You guys won't know what that is. I'm not going to ruin it. But it's the most mind-blowing cliffhanger because it's not what you expect. And it's just... It's an incredible show. That's all I'll say. Incredible. what
3: have you been been binging?
2: I've been binging Comfort Food. I've been binging The Office. That's it.
3: Are you an Office guy? Like
2: I love The Office. Yeah. Yes. The the office is when I was editing my book, I went from episode one to the last episode just with it in the background. It's just comfort food. It's comfort food for a lot of people in the nation too, because I've noticed that like on Netflix, the numbers of people watching The Office has been insane. Yeah, there's a lot of people watching Tiger King and um and uh that drug scandal uh uh show that erin lee carr did which is really good i'm two episodes into that but i
4: had to had to stop a drug scandal or whatever i yeah. watched i binged mm-hmm. the whole thing that yesterday i binged the entire thing in one day it was great um but yeah. it, it it still is um you know it's hard because yeah. the thing is with that show is that it's uh like it's a conspiracy and it just reminds you how disjointed i mean it's not a settling series it's Unsettling. No,
2: there's nothing settling about it. It's very unsettling.
0: Yeah.
4: Also, so something Jack and Jared turned me on to was Ozark, and I'm binging that, and it's amazing. And I'm also binging. Ozark's amazing. And then High Fidelity, if you guys haven't watched it yet on Hulu, Uh, I told Jack to watch it today. I turned Billy onto it earlier this week. And if you're a, a music lover, if you love records, it would be the thing to watch. And it's based on. John Cusack's High Fidelity of the 90s. And it,
2: well, it, you know, Lisa, which was based Lisa, on Nick, Nick book. Hornby's book. Yeah. yeah.
3: Sure.
4: Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Sure. I
3: read that book way back in the day. Don't, I don't mm-hmm. remember much about
4: it. Yeah. But. And, and Lisa Bonet was in the high fidelity movie. So Zoe Kravitz, her daughter, is a star in the, in the series about it. And it's sort of, she is taking on John Cusack's role and it's a very modernized version. And they use music as sort of like, this transitional tool. And it's an incredible show. I binge the whole thing in two days, as I am one to do under these circumstances.
2: Yeah. And actually, you know what, that brings us to, because we have to wrap up this killing time, but next killing time, we should talk about our top fives, because they constantly talk about top fives, top five saddest songs, top five breakup songs, top five Mm. happy songs. I like that. So I think that's what we should do.
3: I like this. I like that. Okay. Well, next week we'll come back. We'll do a little music-themed uh, yeah. killing time next week. So
4: uh, I think we killed enough. Let's call it. Are we calling it? Is it time of death?
0: Yeah.
4: Wait Before I call it, let me take a little screenshot of us. Everyone look cute. Ready? Oh my god, we're so f- cute. Um, I'm not. Wait, what?
3: Oh
1: yeah, Listen, we're calling I'm
4: it. Not. Uh, time of death. 12.30. Beep.
5: Beep. Beep.